ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the 1099. As always, I am your loyal host, Joseph Noop, and today's show is going to be a great one for you history buffs and tabletop gamers and war gamers all the same. Uh, you know me, I, I love uh, tactics and war games, and I've had a couple of friends on in the past in the show to talk about just how special those kinds of games are and the, the new and interesting things being done in that realm of video games. But uh, today's, special, today's episode is going to be particularly special because we are talking about a book about a history of wargaming in a sense. And I'm going to do something I, I don't usually do simply because I can't imagine a better way to preface this episode. I'm going to read a portion uh, from the jacket of A Game of Birds and Wolves uh, by Simon Parkin. By 1941, Winston Churchill had come to believe that the outcome of World War II rested on the Battle of the Atlantic. A grand strategy game was devised by Captain Gilbert Roberts and a group of ten wrens, members of the Women's Royal Navy Service, assigned to his team in an attempt to discover the tactics behind the vicious success of the German U-boats. Played on a linoleum floor divided into painted squares, it required model ships to be moved across a make-believe ocean, much like the childhood game Battleship. Through play, the designers developed Operation Raspberry, a countermaneuver that helped turn the tide of World War II. And who better to walk us through this incredible wartime tale than the author himself? He is an award-winning writer and journalist for The New Yorker and a game critic for The Observer. Ladies and gentlemen, I am honored to have Mr. Simon Parkin. How are you doing, sir? Hi there. Really well, thanks. Yeah. Well, yeah, as we mentioned before we started recording, I, uh, I, I've managed to finish like 95% of the book, which is, <laughs> I, I have to pump myself up here, a pretty special thing for me. I'm, I'm not the greatest <laughs> reader anymore these days, especially with my, my time constraints, but uh, I just devoured this book because it is such a fascinating history of how game play and war gaming play uh, had such an incredible material impact on one of the most important uh, battlefronts of World War II. So right. I, I guess we can start off easy with what really made you, uh, the guy who writes about the games industry for The New Yorker, what made you want to write this book? Well, um, I mean, like, like you say, this is a fantastic example of where a game has had a huge impact on the real world. Um, and for anyone who has played video games throughout their lives, they're probably used to hearing those messages, the sort of negative about games, you know, from parents or whatever, like, why are you wasting your time playing games? Or maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you struggled to get bought a console when you were young because your parents believed it was sort of the, the road to ruin or whatever. Um, and that's a, that's a message that anyone who enjoys games has, has experienced. And as someone who writes about video games and I have done for sort of 10, 15 years. Um, I'm used to experiencing that from editors as well. And, you know, I would say things are changing slowly as, as people grow older and people in positions of power at magazines and newspapers grew up playing games as well. But there's still this sort of general mistrust about games and uh, whether they're worth anything or whether they're just a waste of time. Um, and that led me to really war games which is a style of of game that's played really in some of the most serious rooms around the world uh, they're used by governments and by militaries to um, essentially sort of imagine potential future scenarios and play through how they might act 
in those particular scenarios. Um, so, for example, uh, a group of army generals might sit around a table uh, and they'll have a map uh, in the middle of a table with markers on it and tokens. And uh, each player assumes the role of, say, a different nation. And um, uh, I actually sat in on one of these games that was exactly like this. And it, it happened, you may remember, a couple of years ago that there was... Uh, there was a poisoning in here in Britain um, on mm-hmm. the streets of Salisbury. Um, and in response, the, the British government said, we're pretty sure that this was done by the Russians, so we're going to expel a bunch of Russian diplomats. So the war game that I sat in on, uh, we were basically um, imagining how each player who was representing a different country would react following the um, expelling of these diplomats and uh, what effect that might have on uh, on you know, diplomacy and where troops were being stationed. And it was really played out like a game of Dungeons and Dragons. So the, there was a, an <laughs> army major who was really in the role of a, a dungeon master, and he was rolling dice according to see whether, you know, what each player asked, they would say what they wanted to do in their term and turn, and he would roll some dice to see if they were successful or not. So, like you know, things that are very familiar to anyone who's played uh, tabletop games like that. Um and afterwards, I was talking to the, the dungeon master, as he was, this uh, army major called Tom Nuat. And I said, have you got an example of where something that was learned in a war game proved useful in the real world? And first, he gave me the example of, uh, you may have seen in many films, the red telephone in the White House that links the White House to the Kremlin. Um, it's not actually a red telephone in real life, but in movies, it's often represented like that. And he said that came out of war games that were played uh, during the Cold War. It said on the sort of eve of a nuclear warfare, it probably makes sense for the president to be able to um, make contact with the Kremlin without having to go through the usual long and winding diplomatic channels. So why not in- in- install a direct line? Uh, and then he said, and there's this other example, um, there's this other story from the Second World War about a, a group of young women and a retired naval captain who, who designed a war game that really revolutionised uh, the Battle of the Atlantic for, for the Allies. And that's what led me down the path and, um, you know, to, to find out this fantastic story about a game that had a profound effect on, on the outcome of the war and, uh, you know, on all of our lives as a, as a result. So you were essentially like researching this tangential uh, story, uh, uh, also, I guess, suppose connected to wargaming in a sense, but uh, were clued into the the historical context that had led to uh, such an exercise like that in modern day, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, really, I was making a, a radio program for, for the New Yorker about war games, and I, I'd sort of heard that they were a bit like Dungeons and Dragons, and that image of people playing <laughs> D&D in the Pentagon or wherever was just really appealing to me. Uh, and I was also interested because, you know, these are using um, uh, invented scenarios, much like in video games. And so I was thinking, well, there has to be someone whose job it is to write the scenario that the, that people play. So I was interested in that side of things as well. And, and that's what led me to, to this really important war game from the 1940s. And, you know, I, I think it's important to say that, uh, of course, in, in hobby shops around the world, people play, you know, fantasy and sci-fi uh, versions of this, like war, your Warhammers, uh, your your Star Wars spaceship uh, battle games. Um, but there is this there is this rich, rich history. And it's funny you mention D&D because actually I have that big fat Dungeons and Dragons like official 
uh, history book, like art book thing. Uh, and and early on in that book, they show uh, was it? It was the actor who played uh, General Moff Tarkin, the you know secondary villain in the original Star Wars, right. uh, playing World War II uh, tabletop war games Mm -hmm. and it was fascinating to think like oh here's this highly esteemed actor who has uh, probably leagues of uh, of life stories he could tell and probably i I, if i remember correctly he may have been involved in world war ii himself but there's this history both pre and post world war ii of of war games really uh informing how we approach yeah battle and all that so uh on that note Tell me a little bit about, it's funny to think this is a a book about war games, but they existed before that. They existed before World War II. Uh, What what did wargaming look like prior to World War II? Uh, What what were those like nascent stages? Right, well, uh, well, war games were developed or invented, I suppose, in Germany um, about 300 years prior to that. Um, And they really looked like, um, miniature battlefields, so with the with the terrain all, all created um, and with little soldiers to represent the troops, and they were they were used uh, initially, um, I believe, as a way to restage actual battles that had, that had happened recently to see if things could have been done differently to affect the outcome of, of that particular battle. And then, as time went on, they became used to also envision potential outcomes of you know if you, if i deploy my troops here what effect might that have on my enemy or on the, on the wider war um they they were being used in britain um at the turn of the century um so you know 40 years prior to world war ii um by the navy um to in much a similar way i mean they're they're, they're very useful for um for training and testing different um varieties of, of tactics so um i think it's important this is something i actually d- didn't know until uh, you know a couple of years ago but there's a there's a difference between strategy and tactics which maybe if you're really into board games you already know about but but strategy is really sort of the bird's eye view of um of a, of a war where tactics is right down in the in the battlefield so uh, you know if you imagine if you played final fantasy tactics for example you're literally moving your troops square by square so that's that's mm-hmm. a, ta- a tactics game rather than a strategy game that would be uh, you know much much higher up with a view and you're moving entire uh, battalions around for example so yeah the, the naval games that were being used around the turn of the century tended to be uh, tactics games and and that was true of, of the game that was developed by captain roberts it was a very specific Specific to the U-boat war in the Atlantic, and the U-boat attacks themselves were some of the deadliest, uh, according to this book, and including civilian casualties, like uh, merchant ships and these boats that were trying to transport people just over to America. So, you know, th- these were uh, both well-connected, wealthy people, and also a sort of lottery system that helped get kids out of you know war-torn uh, Britain. Yeah. Walk us through. Yeah. Walk us through. How dire was the situation prior to uh, the formation of this Western Approaches Tactical Unit? What? What? How bloody was this conflict? Well, um, extremely. So that so Britain is of course an, an island nation, and that means that we're heavily reliant on on imports for our survival, for our food, food and fuel, and and in times of war, also for everything that 
is necessary to make a war happen. Um, and that food, fuel and supplies would had to be imported across the Atlantic from North America, from Canada, uh, from other trading partners. Um, the German Navy immediately recognised that this was a huge weakness for the British and figured out that if they could attack those merchant ships that were bringing the food and the fuel across the sea and they could sink them before they reached England, then, you know, soon enough they'd be able to starve the country out. And this uh, this you know, fact was acknowledged by Churchill, who said that um, the war at sea was the foundation of our of our war strategy. Um, and it was also illustrated in you know, fantastically in this massive chart that was pinned to the wall of the Admiralty, the naval headquarters in London. And it, it was basically a graph that showed the current state of sinkings of merchant ships trying to reach England. And it had a it had a, a red line about three quarters of the way up the graph. And if the rate of sinkings of the line depicting that went above this red threshold, then Britain could no longer participate in the, in the war. And prior to the formation of Watu, the, the, that line between the, the sinkings and the, and the threshold of where we could continue to fight became narrower and narrower. Um, so yes, the, and, and the primary reason for this was the success of the U-boats. So the U-boats would attack the merchant ships, um, you know, often in packs like, like wolves. In fact, that tactic was named after the wolf pack. Um, and the, the British Navy, which was supposed to be protecting the merchant ships, if you imagine the merchant ships moving together a bit like a flock of sheep, and then all around them, you've got the, the naval ships acting like sheepdogs, trying to fend off attacks from U-boats. Uh, really, the naval ships were, were having a, a terrible time of it. They didn't have any coordinated set of um, tactics with which to repel the U-boats. And um, the U-boat the captains also had developed a tactic that, that was really hidden to the British captains. What they would do is, in the middle of the night, they would sneak up from behind the merchant ships uh, on the surface of the water. And rather than firing their torpedoes from two or three kilometres, which is what the British assumed they were doing, uh, they would then fire their torpedoes at point blank range, almost like they got into a, you know, a chicken coop or something like a fox. And uh, they would make all of their attacks and then dive and just wait for the convoy to pass ahead. So the, the, the U-boats were having tremendous success, you know, their rate of uh, losses was far lower than the rate of merchant ships that they were managing to to sink. Um, and so something drastically needed to be done by the uh, by by the end of um, 1941. It is really fascinating. I think yeah, there's a picture in the book uh, of one of those such convoys surrounding you know a line of merchant ships or other. and yeah, the 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 thought that, these U-boat captains, many of whom were like, you know, prior aces in World War One, and, and had a lot of uh, pride and, and military uh, uh, fervor wrapped up in, in how well they did compared to their uh, fellow captains. Uh, mm. It is crazy to think of how, yeah, you can sneak a literal massive submarine through enemy lines and basically sneak right up to, like you say, yeah, point blank within probably a couple hundred yards, I imagine, of a ship and just utterly decimate it. And 
the the book itself, I, I got to commend you for, especially early on, there's a couple of these anecdotes I, I won't spoil for the people who will read this book that just really encapsulate how uh, heavy a toll, both in terms of materials and, uh, but also the people who were impacted mm-hmm. on these uh, children and women uh, who were victims on these ships. And it, it, it seems like that the, the German captains... Um, most times had no real way of knowing uh, what they were actually firing upon. They just knew like, hey, this is a big ship. It looks good. Maybe we can make some markings out that will tell us like this is, oh, this is this merchant ship that we know. But uh, mm-hmm. just a just an utter nightmare, it seemed like, uh, before the formation of uh, Watu as it came to be known. So yeah. uh, I, yeah, I, I got to ask. Go oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say it's important to, to note as well that the, the U-boat captains were – um, you know, they were members of the German Navy. They weren't necessarily Nazis. They they were, you know, fighting right. obviously for, for the Germans, but um, they they wouldn't necessarily be members of the party. But but anyway, they were sort of encouraged to view their targets. You know, almost like it was almost like a high score game. Really, they would uh, they would take down a merchant ship and then they'd try and look up the name of the ship that they destroyed so they could find out its its tonnage, how much it weighed. And basically, their award, uh, their awards were were based on the number of tons that they managed to sink. And the, you know, the greater the number of tons, the more famous they became, the better their um, their perks, and the and the better the, the the awards that they received as well from the from the German Navy. So, um, you know, it's just one of the ways in which I guess a conflict is dehumanized and turned into um, you know a bit of a numbers game, really. Yeah, it, it seemed like in a way the the German uh, military uh, machine, yeah, was gamify. All all these militaries are gamifying uh, the way that they approach war. Uh, on one hand, maybe because yes, it, it is dehumanizing and it helps you look at at war as more of a numbers game, mm. uh, which in some respects it is, uh, especially when you get down to like a, an island nation like Britain needing supplies. Uh, but yeah, just I guess I got to ask, you know, so you you were researching war games for a podcast and uh then you got clued into this did you uh did you yourself what was the research process like for this big because you you say in the book that a lot of these records about uh western approaches tactical unit watu are kind of and the wrens themselves are kind of lost to time this group of uh, uh female worker this workforce that uh, themselves engaged in a lot of dangerous activities during the war. Uh, how did you begin to dig into such a big, but kind of murky apparatus like that? Mm. Well, uh, I mean, I suppose the the first place to start is in the National Archives here in Britain, where lots of the documents from the Second World War are kept, and they were opened after fifty years, and so you can go and read those, and they have the the reports about. Uh, Watu's work and the numbers of officers that went and played the game and were trained. Um, but also uh, I worked with a genealogist, a researcher who helped me track down uh, family members, basically re- descendants of, of Captain Robertson and of the, the Wrens. Um, and in that way, we were able to sort of call people up and say, do you know about what your mother or your grandmother did in the war? And do you have to have any photos or any stories you can share? And um, we were lucky in the sense that um, Captain Robert's daughter, uh, when 
when I eventually found her, she had a trunk filled with all of his diaries and memoirs and all of the certificates he got. And he'd, he'd written down the whole story, essentially, of, of his role throughout the war. And in fact, his life story, but the bit I was particularly interested in, obviously, was his work at Watu. Um, so that was a, that was a huge help. And one of the Wrens who, who worked with Roberts, so over the course of, um, from Watu was founded at the start of 1942 and it continued to operate to the end of the war in the summer of 1945. During that time, more than 60 Wrens worked there, sort of as uh, orchestrating the games, um, helping with the teaching, all of that sort of thing. Um, but it started out with a relatively small number of women, just 10 of them. And one of those women, Liz Drake, as she was known at the time, and she later got married actually to uh, someone else who worked at Watu, uh, Fred Osborne. Uh, she was still alive when I started researching the book. So I was able to interview her via her family. Um, so, yeah, it was just a, a long and painstaking process, really. There had been a biography written about Captain Roberts in the 1970s. So that was a good place to start. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you know one of the things that, that I discovered though is that most of the women who who were very young at the time they were really aged between seventeen and twenty five. Uh, they were picked specifically for this role because they had because of their aptitude either in mathematics or statistics or or in game playing. In fact, there were a couple of very competent uh, sports women uh, on the Watu team. Um, Almost none of them had written down their stories, though, perhaps because they were so young at the time and felt like it wasn't their story to tell. Um, or, you know, just also because the kind of people who were allowed to tell their or encouraged to tell their stories after the war tended to be very senior uh, male officers um, in positions of power. And I suppose if you were just sort of, um, you know, in, in your early 20s and had, had had this role, you wouldn't really be able to get special permission to write your biography. So a few of the Wrens had written up their stories sort of later in life. But uh, yeah, it was it was much harder to find details from from their stories. I do really want to dig into uh, Watu, and it really seems like it was all kind of born out of this band of misfits who took, took I suppose, the, the foundation of, okay, wargaming is a thing that the military already does, but we need to do it differently because we're getting shredded every single day uh, in the Atlantic. And you have, yeah, like you said, Captain Gilbert Roberts and this assortment of women, many young, including some uh, lesbian women, too. They're all, at one point or another, really judged harshly or disregarded. Uh, Roberts was uh, kind of removed from service because of, I believe, a disability he had. Uh, and what, what, where were these people kind of in their life? And you know, what, why, why was it this kind of person who was uh, forming this really particular group? Right. Well, well, Roberts was. Uh... Roberts was a, at the time he was he was summoned for this role. He was a naval commander who who had been forced out of the navy because, as you say, he, he contracted tuberculosis. Uh, he had been serving on a ship in Gibraltar and came back. He got very ill, came back to Britain, and as soon as he steps off the ship, he's seen by a, a doctor, and the doctor says, "You've got tuberculosis," and the navy sort of ruthlessly says. Well, you know, we've got to kick you out. Um, and in fact, he didn't know if he was going to survive. Um, so he goes off to a hospital, and he does. He does survive. But then, you know, he's sort of 
in his late 30s at that time without a role anymore. You know, the Navy had been his life since he was 12 years old and uh, he doesn't really have anything to do. He sort of tries, he's a works as a police officer for a while, um, but he's, you know, he's sort of missing, missing the piece of him that, that you know, missing that role that he really wants and needs. Um, and then he receives this this phone call on the uh, the last day of 1941, uh, and they summon him to the Admiralty in London and say, "Make sure you know, bring an overnight bag with you." And when he arrives there, he gets let into this secret about just how drastic things are for the British, the the terrible situation um, in the Atlantic, and quite how close Britain has come to starvation. And this had been really kept from the British public for morale reasons, presumably. And Prime Minister Churchill would exaggerate the number of U-boats that we'd sunk and downplay the number of merchant ships that had been lost. But Roberts is told the the true situation and is obviously astonished. A few years prior to this, Roberts had run some war games on the south coast of England. Um, so he was known to be sort of skilled in this area and a good tactician. By this point in the war, in the war, anyone who's able-bodied is needed at sea. So if you're a, you know, if you're in in any position to serve on a on a ship, then that's where you get sent. Roberts, because of his uh, disability. Um, is in a unique position. He's a skilled tactician. He's got experience running war games. He can't serve on a ship. So they say to him, we want you to go to Liverpool. And uh, there you're going to be given the top floor of a building there, secret building. Uh, we're going to give you 10 wrens. And we want you to develop a war game that will help us to understand uh, the secret behind the U-boat success. Um, and so he catches the overnight train, goes up there, and uh, really over the next few weeks meets his staff and starts to um, set out uh, the rules for the game that he's going to he's going to use to tackle this problem. And U-boats themselves, uh, they were employed in some fashion in World War One, it seemed, and mm-hmm. but World War Two was really where the the german military was uh constantly asking for more of these to get developed and uh, it seemed like it's obviously vastly different than having just two boats trying to duke it out you can always see them you know what like general Mm -hmm. movement they're capable of but a u-boat of course has the advantage of being able to literally disappear under the water and so that had to change the battlefield from a a flat, you know, almost 2D sort of plane to fully 3D, right? Yeah, that's that's true. Because if you think if you're, you know, for the Royal Naval ships that are trying to um, blow up a U-boat, the way in which, you know, the the weapon that they have at this stage in the war is called a depth charge, which is essentially like an oil drum filled with explosives and a, and a timer set to explode. And they, they can adjust the timer for how many seconds until it detonates. And they essentially just chuck the oil barrel off the side of the ship and then drop it down. So you imagine a submarine in 3D space. They're trying to judge precisely where the U-boat is. They're trying to time the explosion just right. And it needs, obviously, to be close enough so that the explosion penetrates the hull of the U-boat. So it's very, very difficult um, very di- very difficult to do and this is re- reflected in the game that Robertson Renz developed which in game design terms is is known as um, an asymmetrical game so in chess for example that's a symmetrical game each player has the same exactly the same um, units and they all can move the same way you have the same number of pawns the same number of 
castles, etc., etc. Um, in the game that they developed, obviously one team is playing as the Royal Naval ships, which have one set of capabilities. They can move in a certain way, and they've got a certain type of weapon. The U-boats uh, operate in a completely different way, so the player who's playing as the U-boats has a completely different set of moves that they can use. Um, so this was the kind of game that, that Roberts had to develop, one that um, allowed for this um, asymmetrical um, uh, battlefield, essentially. And the, the way that they designed the game is um, their room looked a bit like a school gymnasium. Um, I was going to say, f- it, it looks really like it, like almost shantytown-esque. Uh, yeah, right. Y- you think like, oh, major military operation, maybe it's like a dark room with lots of nice lighting and everything, but it's literally people on the floor with rulers, just like you would be like your kitchen r- table uh, trying to like figure out where you're going to send your Warhammer Space Marines. <laughs> <laughs> right, it, it's exactly that. And it's important to, to note as well, when, when Roberts arrives at, in Liverpool, you know, him and his team are viewed with tremendous skepticism. The uh, the commander in chief of, of Western Approaches, who is uh, Robert's ultimate boss, sort of says, "Well, you can you, you know you can go and you can have that room up the top of the building, but don't bother me with any of it." You know, there's this view even then, and this is you know some of the reason the story appealed to me, I guess. This feel that you know games are a waste of time. What are you doing playing games while there's a war on? And, you know, Roberts understands actually something here really valuable. We can learn something within the crucible of the game that is going to teach us something extremely valuable in the real world, um, which I think anyone who really cares about games already and instinctively knows and believes. so anyway, yeah, they, they play out this game, like you say, it looks a bit like a shantytown. It's played on a linoleum floor that's divided into um, into columns. Each line is spaced um, a few inches apart that's um, designed to represent um, 10 nautical miles, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, so they essentially have on the floor the board. Uh, this represents the sea. And onto that, they, they use pieces of chalk to make markings. They use little tokens to represent the ships. Um, the the movements of the of the allied ships are, are drawn out in white chalk that's easily legible wherever you stand in the room, and the movements of the U-boats are drawn out in green chalk, which is very difficult to make out against the brown of the floor unless you're standing sort of directly above it. The reason for this is all around the edge of the room. They've got canvas sheets that look a bit like voting booths or something like that. And into those little slits are cut uh, as at eye level. Now, if you're a player playing as one of the naval ships hunting the U-boats, you have to stand behind that, that uh, canvas sheet in the booth and look down at the board through the little slit. And the angle and the distance um, uh, of, the, of the sheet to the board is sort of meant to... Um, approximate visibility at sea so what you can see of the battle of the battlefield down below through the you know looking through the slit is sort of what you could see if you were in a real battle um, looking around trying to see where the other ships are and everything um, and what would happen is during each turn of the game which would last for around two minutes uh, if you were playing as a royal naval um, captain you would write down your move which you might say i want my ship to head in this direction um, at this speed and I want it to drop a depth charge over here, for example. And you would write that all down on a little piece of paper called a chit and then post it into a letterbox. That would be collected by one of the wrens who would then run around to the board and then every all of the wrens would make the different adjustments according to everyone's moves. 
each game would last for you know upwards of an hour an hour of 90 minutes and at the end everyone would gather back together around the board and captain roberts who sort of ran ran the whole show would then go blow by blow through the battle what had happened he had a you know a really long pole that he'd used to point and sort of point out really like an after match commentator these are the moments of particular brilliance these were the moments where um you know you did something stupid or whatever and <laughs> um, and in this way you know the the players of the game would start to understand where they were going wrong in their t- current tactical thinking um and it, it proved to be a really effective uh, means of of teaching really and that the st- the people who were playing the games were the actual captains who were fighting out at sea they would often come back from the battlefield and and then spend a week playing different scenarios in the game as a way to learn more effective countermeasures for for how to how to battle the u-boats um, all of that sort of happened from you know a few months into Watu's existence the first few weeks were just you know there weren't any students it was just focused on getting the way that the game would work together and then using it to figure out where are we going wrong in the in our battles against U-boats and what could we do to sort of be more effective against them. And um, and it was it was through this early work of restaging those those battles and essentially reverse engineering them that they were able to expose this misunderstanding, this fatal misunderstanding in in British or allied tactical thinking, whereby it had previously been believed that the U-boats were firing on the merchant ships from two, three, four kilometers away. And in fact, mm-hmm. by sort of reverse engineering the, these battles, Roberts was able to see, it was a kind of a eureka moment where he was like, that can't be happening. The only way this battle could have played out this way is if the U-boat had snuck into the middle of the battlefield and was firing from point blank range. And once they'd exposed that, they were able to completely revolutionize um, their tactics. I think, I think one of my favorite parts of the book, and it's a minor spoiler, I'd say, is just uh, uh, Roberts after the war, or at least after his you know portion of it, uh, goes and attempts to learn directly from uh, the remaining German commanders, you know exactly what tactics that they were employing, and he he asked them like, were you aware that like we were trying to you know reverse engineer all your stuff, and they were like, yep, we we had a goddamn picture of you up on the wall, and. Uh, the, I think my favorite line of his is he comes back and he gives his report to his superiors and they're like, well, okay, what, what did you learn from the, the Germans now that we're doing this post-war report? And he says, I think I learned nothing. I learned absolutely nothing yeah. Uh, because, yeah, they had managed to learn just by reverse engineering by saying like, okay, well, what's what's the what's the Occam's razor here? What's the simplest explanation for why – all of our ships are getting blown to pieces and let's let's chart out this battle we just had and see if we can connect a couple dots and i i really like that idea that uh the the learning doesn't necessarily have to come afterwards it can come during so long as you uh, are ingenuous enough yeah yeah that's right yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, while, while so Roberts is one of the first British naval officers to visit Germany at the at the end of the war. And um, during his interviewing a very high ranking um, German U-boat commander and, and says, you know, did you know about any of our maneuvers that we developed? And um, and this this commander uh, got says, 
uh, yes, we, we knew about the name of one of them, Operation Raspberry. Now, mm. Operation Raspberry was the very first countermeasure that Roberts and the Wrens developed. Um, and it was named by one of the Wrens, uh, Gene Laidlaw, who was a, a very talented statis- statistician. And uh, Roberts had given her the, the honour of, of naming the manoeuvre, and she named it as a raspberry because it was like sort of blowing a fart noise at Hitler, as, as she put it. <laughs> I, I, I really did fall in love with some of the, the Wrens who worked with Watu. Uh, they are they are like the perfect kind of assembled cast of a, of a movie or just a really uh, colorful you know story. You had people like uh, was it, uh, Vera Lawton Matthews. Uh, who like uh, there's another photo in here I'm, I'm literally pulling it up at the book who scandalized the driver of her service car by routinely sitting with her legs up on the back seats and you do get the sense that uh at least for most of the women working in here this was a, jo- a job that they could really take pride in they weren't just housewives they weren't uh just uh you know uh secretaries or something to that effect but they were they were driving motorcycles through Luftwaffe bombings to relay messages, and they were working as part of this really integral uh, tactical effort uh, that really helped save a lot of lives, including some of the the men that they like you know fell in love with and ended up marrying. So, uh, what what made all these women so special, and uh, what what makes them? Really, I suppose, as the front of the book says, you know, the the ingenious young women whose work helped turn the tide. Yeah, I, I mean, I think everything you said there is is very true. You, you have to remember that, I suppose, in the late 1930s, if you were a, a young woman in, in your late teens or your early 20s, prior to war, it was really you know, your horizons were quite narrow. You were expected, you know, your Victorian father would probably expect you to to marry and become a housewife, like you say. And one of the curious things about the arrival of war is it's, uh, you know, for all its horror and um, awfulness, for young women in that particular moment, it does have this sort of almost liberating effect. So suddenly... The reason that the the Rens is is reformed this, that's the Women's Royal Naval Service, which all of the young women who worked at Watu were member of. Um, the reason it's reformed is because there was a shortage of men. Basically, all the able-bodied men needed to go and serve at sea, and so there were all these jobs and rules, uh, roles and responsibilities that needed fulfilling. Um, at home and uh, there were no men to do them which is why the the women have this opportunity to step in and you know when you read the letters they write at the time or the diaries that they keep there's this sort of huge sense of excitement i guess it's a bit like going off to college or or university nowadays for for a young 18 19 year old woman um it's uh, that sense of freedom and now i get to sort of define who i am and discover who i am you know without being you know under the eye of my family or whatever you you just get a bit of freedom to become the person that you're going to become and that that's very true of the war i think and so there was this this sort of really curious juxtaposition of this is immensely serious work and you know the wrens were acutely aware of that because like you say they would they would know they would receive reports of the ships that had been torpedoed and men who had been lost and they would have known some of their names from from their time at shore but also 
you know, the, the battles were often being, um, or the situation in the Atlantic was often being represented on huge wall charts, basically giant maps, which were filled with little tokens showing the positions of ships and the positions of U-boats as well, according to British intelligence. And so very often the Wrens who were working in, in those rooms could look at the wall and see, oh, you know, my boyfriend who's on this particular ship is heading towards a pack of U-boats. Um, mm-hmm. So you can imagine the intensity of that, just not knowing if they're going to survive, imagining what it might be like for them. So, you know, they're all completely fully seized of the of the importance of their work, but also, you know, having this opportunity to experience, I suppose, a, a excitement and a sense of um, importance in, in the work that they're doing as well. Um, and that's certainly true of the, the young women who, who worked at Watu, um, who almost without exception from those whose accounts um, uh, survive, looked back at that time with immense fondness and particularly captain roberts who i think they they had a they had fondness for and appreciated even though he was a tough person to work for by all accounts um and i think as well you know there there was this strange situation where through playing the game over and over again over the months many of these young women who who in lots of cases had never even been to sea, let alone participated in the battle. They slowly became some of the top experts in anti-submarine warfare anywhere in the in the yeah. Allied forces. And so you would have this situation where officers would be coming off ships having just, you know, been serving in the Atlantic. They were told to go and go play the games for a week, go through a, a, the training course at Watu for one which lasted one week. And there's one anecdote of a, a very sort of well-known captain and successful U-boat, uh, anti- U-boat hunter called um, Winnie. And uh, he describes sort of writing down on his piece of paper what move he wants to make, handing it to a wren. And the wren sort of looking at his instructions and she said, no, sir, I, I don't think you should do that. And Winnie writes in his uh, in his autobiography that he sort of thought well what on earth does this girl know she's you know so much younger she's never she's never seen um, action before but he sort of listens to her and he he makes his amends according to what she said and she's proven to be right and i think it just that anecdote shows the immense power of games to make if not experts from amateurs then certainly to get people a lot of the way there and to instill in people you know valuable um, life-changing experience and understanding and knowledge. And I guess it's worth mentioning too that uh, reading in the book, it seems like the Germans really did not have, they, they had a tactical unit. They, they, they studied and did war games all the same, but uh, they, they did not allow women to take part in such practices. And there was, I suppose, at least with the more um, you know, dedicated Nazi wings of uh, the German community, uh, it, it, they really did fall back on women are, you know, destined to be housewives and basic workers. Yeah, mothers. Not, not, take, not take part in these more masculine activities, yeah. Yeah, it was very sort of, yeah, very, like a hyper-conservative view, and they had a slogan that women are for, um, yeah, for the... For I, I can't quite remember the German for it, but it's you know they're there to be mothers and uh, wives and to uh, be in the kitchen basically. 
Um, uh, and that's not to say that the women di- didn't have roles, you know, within the, the German forces, and they, they absolutely did. But when when Roberts goes to um, uh, visits Flensburg, which is at the end of the war, which is where the U-boat headquarters were um, were stationed, one of the senior officers there, German officers, remarks that, um, you know, they'd seen this magazine article about Roberts and his Wrens and they couldn't believe, you know, how much responsibility the Wrens had been given. Um, so I think that was a, a point of pride as well, as well for Roberts, who who was, you know, extremely fond of the young women he worked with and, and had a huge amount of respect for them. Yeah, it really, you read in the book that he would send them the, like uh, congratulatory notes and supportive notes like some of them mm. you know had they all had extracurricular activities yeah some went on to become models and some went on to become uh, people working in just different various fields and yeah almost a very fatherly kind of sense of uh, hey i i'm proud of you and like i i dragged all of us here to make sure that we're here to support you because it's important that he probably felt that it was important that uh, Watu wasn't their entire lives because I'm sure that could have been a very oppressive, uh, resentful feeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was certainly grueling hours, and there was no escaping that. But they did. You know, some of the Wrens would would take part in. They would put plays on and things like that. Christmas, they they did loads of loads of things that were not related to the war. So there were sort of outlets, but. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was it was very intense, very very long hours, and and Roberts gets quite ill during the course of the the war. He's tremendously overworked, and at the end of the war, actually has to go into hospital again. Um, so yeah, there's no denying that it that it was brutal as well. And I think he probably he knew that, and I think he also you know felt a kinship with them because because they'd all been doubted by the senior figure, by many fi- senior figures in the Navy, you know, the work that they were doing. And so, you know, the fact that they'd proven everyone wrong was probably, um, you know, made him feel not only immensely proud, but, you know, brought a sense of team that was, uh, that, that lasted throughout the rest of their lives. I, I think I, as we begin to wrap up here a little bit, I want to ask definitely, we mentioned earlier, uh, Roberts himself would do these kind of, uh, post shows after the games were run and with a long stick he'd point out well here's what happened and here's why this happened and it seems like it's it's really funny that there's an element of showmanship and entertainment to these games beyond just the the tactical uh, benefit of them and the the Mm. uh, more educational side of it and it, it just all kind of all brings it back together to what is you know modern war gaming we're you know spending a hundred dollars on a a couple of packs of warhammer or uh, other versions of war games and putting them on the table and there's there's an entertainment value to it of course Mm. so why was it so important for roberts to sort of he he consulted with like radio hosts to say like well how do i how do i make this post show more engaging for these people why was that so important to all this well, I, I mean, it, first it was it, it was just the very basic reason that the the people he was teaching were exhausted, so they had yeah. very often come back from fighting in the Atlantic, and you can imagine, you know, you get you get to shore, and the first thing you just want you want some time off, right? And then you you receive this order that you've got to go and play games for a week, <laughs> this training school, and then yeah. I think Roberts was aware that you know he had an audience that that needed to be captivated and uh, needed to be, you know, their attention needed to be held. But then also there's the fact of, as any good dungeon master knows, you know, the, a game 
you know, the person who is DMing a game has the power to make it memorable or, you know, can really, if you get a bad DM, then a, then a game is not, uh, can be not memorable at all. And, you know, so much of it is down to the presenting skills or the, the ability to tell a story and paint a picture for the person who's running the game. And I think this is something, you know, I, I, obviously I keep making allusions to this being like Dungeons and Dragons and I know lots of very serious war game analysts and strategists would probably <laughs> not like me to continue to <laughs> make that, you, yeah. uh, draw that comparison, but it is true. But anyway, Roberts, who you know instinctively knew, I think that he needed to to bring what's happening in the abstracted game board on the floor. You know these bits of string and pieces of chalk and you know they had wire wool to represent smoke and things like that to bring all of that to life you sort of need a bit of skill as a storyteller um and uh you know that's what he did that he 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 writes in his in his diaries that, that he found this part of the work actually the most rewarding that painting the picture of the battles that uh, the players had played out and bringing them to life was really the thing that he he enjoyed most about his his work at Watu. and i think he wanted to make it vibrant and memorable because he knew that these lessons had to be fully absorbed by the players because they're about to go back out to sea now if they haven't corrected their misunderstandings or fallacies in their in their tactical thinking by the time they go out and meet a real U-boat, then it can have mortal consequences. Um, so he was very eager to to make sure that the lessons were completely absorbed. And he, you know, one of his his fa- favoured phrases was "Make your mistakes here on the on the linoleum floor, um, so that you mo- won't make them out at sea." And um, he understood that uh, to to drive that point home, I think he needed to he needed to be a bit of a good storyteller, as any as any teacher knows, I suppose. And I suppose it it makes sense too with with World War Two, of course, so commonly regarded as like the last great war, and then warfare becoming a much more smaller, more skirmish based kind of uh, experience, at least as far as like Western military is concerned. Uh, tactics games. It, it makes sense that a tactics game focused on World War II uh, battles needs that element of great storytelling and the the scope and the scale and the destruction of a World War II battle definitely lends it a lot of uh, storytelling gravitas that something like, you know, based on Vietnam or Korea or uh, the Middle Eastern Wars, a plenty uh, may not necessarily get. So, uh, yeah, that all that all makes a lot of sense. And I suppose, uh, Simon, we where can people buy this book? I know it's it's already out in Europe, right? Uh, is it is it out in the U.S. already? I, I failed to look that up. Yes, yeah, so it came out uh, in North America, uh, I think, last week. Um, so you okay. can you can pick it up in Barnes and Noble, or Amazon, all of those places, and uh, yeah, please do. And if you enjoy it, then maybe leave a leave a kind review would be appreciated <laughs> <laughs> and where where can people find uh, just your general uh, journalism work um so uh yeah so I, I write about video games you know a few times a year for the new yorker and then i write monthly about them for for the observer which is what the guardian is called on a sunday here in the uk but no one outside yeah. of the uk understands that or knows that but uh <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I've got a website, simonparking.com, and there you can 
you know, see the pieces that I've written about games, but also about other things as well. Well, it has been an absolute blast to learn about this uh, very undercovered uh, part of World War II history and just its connections to the games that we all love uh, today. Uh, I know I'm definitely not going to look at uh, a war game the same way ever again because I know there's going to be a lot of history behind it and uh, hopefully people will read this book and see just what kind of an invaluable contribution the women of the Wrens and Captain Gilbert Roberts really made to uh, history and to mm-hmm. the arts. So, uh, hey, yeah, uh, folks. Hey, you, can I ask, uh, just real quick, well, you said at the yeah. start that you, you're big into tactics games. Which uh, which ones do you like? Well, I I... I, a couple times a year, I will try really hard to get into Total War. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I start. I started with Shogun Two, uh, and I think I have the first Warhammer Total War. Uh, but then also, of course, uh, just growing up with friends who were into hobby shop stuff. Once I got yeah. sick of like Magic the Gathering, I was like, okay, let me let me look into Warhammer because that just even though that's like a way more expensive and a, a big production and takes hours to play, I was like, I really I, I fell in love of course of course with the like you know dark sci-fi universe, but also just the idea of I like turn-based stuff that lets yeah. me like take a little bit of time and even though like I'm losing I, I feel like so many tactics games you're losing for 90% until the right conditions happen and that's all it takes. So that's yeah. really kind of what speaks to me about those kinds of games for sure. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. How about yourself? Like are are you a uh, I assume you must be a, a fairly big tactics game or what what really speaks to you on that front? Well, uh, you know, I enjoyed Come On and Conquer and all that that stuff, but I, I'm sort of really into the Japanese um, tactical RPGs. So I mentioned Final Fantasy Tactics earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we're recording this, I think, on the on the um, anniversary of Vagrant Story, which was uh, which was a good one. Yeah. And then all of the Nipponichi games, Disgaea, and all of that stuff. I'm a big fan of those. Played played lots of those. So. Yeah, I, I I I agree with you. I totally love the genre, and um, I like the fact that you can take your time and plan. And uh, and then yeah, it's sometimes I guess like in the some of the ogre battle games, I think you can reverse a few moves if you make a mistake, and then try out different tactics and see where where it might have gone differently had you done something else. And that's really like gets to the essence of why governments and militaries use war games as well. It's a way to sort of practice um, potential you know see see what happens if you take particular actions and see if it works out and you do it in the safe context of a of a of a game and then uh, it sort of forearms you for for when that situation arise arises in real life yeah turns those tactics into muscle memory at that point when it really matters yeah <laughs> when you can when you don't have to like sit there for three hours and think about your next move you can just say like okay for better or worse yeah i think i'm i think i'm gonna go with this real quickly right and yeah. uh you're, you're you're giving me story ideas you should you should end up writing um uh maybe a, an explainer or a history of western tactics games versus eastern tactics games oh, yeah. and i yeah. i can only imagine the history behind all that probably influences how but all of those were built yeah you know? yeah yeah fire emblem and advance wars all that stuff exactly uh i gotta go but damn now i gotta go back to shogun and uh <laughs> <laughs> or maybe i'll do I'll, I'll do the the was it total war three kingdoms right now with the uh uh-huh. the chinese uh fronts 
And folks, the book is A Game of Birds and Wolves. Uh, go ahead and support it. Go ahead and follow Simon on Twitter. And it's just such an incredible book. I guarantee that if you like wargaming tactics, uh, even just a, a good nonfiction historical read, you will really enjoy it. And uh, next couple of weeks, our guests are going to be really fun. We're going to have Megaran, the uh, nerdcore rapper, uh, talking about kind of his background in education and how that's really influenced his work. We're going to be talking to the Kentucky Route Zero developers. And hopefully we're still getting something planned here. We're going to be talking to Rami Ismail and Steven Spawn, uh, Rami of uh, Vlambeer and Steven Spawn of Able Gamers, uh, just before GDC to talk about kind of designing more inclusive events and uh, that'll be a great time so simon parkin thank you so much i really appreciate your time oh thanks for having me it's been a blast